How great thou art. Sparing, sent him by. I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my gladly bearing, he died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my spirit. How great thou art, thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. How great thou art. Out of acclamation and what joy shall fill my heart in humble adoration and there proclaim a God of grace thou art then sing
Actually, I think I was as much to blame for whatever happened in the recording this morning uh, because when I got the battery pack out of my pocket, it did, there was no light showing even though I had it turned on. So I don't know what happened, uh, but there was no recording. So I feel bad about that. But there were times when I was in my church in Phoenix and I would have a big sign on the pulpit, recorder, which was a reminder to me to turn the recorder 
on, and sometimes I never gave it a second thought. And uh, so I understand how things can go wrong, and I always took the approach. There was some reason why the Lord didn't want that recorded, and so that was probably what happened this morning. Uh, I hope you remember the text from this morning. It's a simple text, shouldn't be too hard to remember. Adam, Sheth, Enosh, and I hope you can remember some of the things that we said about it. I Years ago and before I went into the ministry, I taught speech. And one of the things I learned uh, when I was teaching was studies had been done about people who listened to things spoken orally. And they studied how much they remembered of what was said one day later, one week later, one month later, one year later. And they were discouraging statistics. The one-day figure was 10%. The one-week figure was 1%. And so you can imagine what the month and the year. And I, I got some confirmation of this reality when I was preaching uh, I would sometimes be led to messages that I had preached years before, and I would uh, make some changes to them and preach them again, and most people had no recollection of any of it. So uh, I remember Bob Jones Jr. always used to say that one of his favorite texts was line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. So he would deliberately go over the same things again and again. And he would say, sometimes students would write to him and say, Dr. Bob, why do you always say the same things over and over? And he said, well, one of these days you're going to get it. So uh, that's the burden of the ministry is continuing to preach. There's nothing new, nothing innovative. We just preach the truth as we find it in the scriptures. It's a joy to be here today. Certainly rejoice to renew fellowship with Mark and Robin Finout, with their daughters, and with all of you. I trust that the Lord will bless you richly here and continue to bless the ministry of the word in these trying times. Uh, We left home last Monday from our home in Arizona, and uh, we took our time. It's one of the leisure pursuits we have now. We don't have a lot of pressure to be anywhere at a certain time, so we took our time and arrived here in Kansas City Friday afternoon, and uh, we're going to be heading out on the road again on Tuesday and continuing our journey, but it's been pleasant to travel together and uh, to see the beauty of our country. Today we're going to turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 16. The Gospel of Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16 
I want to focus today mainly on the last 12 verses of the chapter, but I think it's well for us to read the whole chapter. It's not very long, uh, just so that we have the whole context for what we're going to consider today. Beginning at verse 1, And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome had brought sweet had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him meaning Jesus and very early in the morning the first day of the week they came unto the sepulchre at the rising of the sun and they said among themselves who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulchre and when they looked They saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted. Ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way. Tell his disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulchre, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Now, when Jesus was risen early, the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with them, with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. After that... He appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue. Neither believed they them. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. 
Amen. Amen. It is the Word of God. And may the Lord add His blessing to the public reading of His infallible Word for His name's sake. Let's bow together in prayer. Father in heaven, now we come to Thee with Thy Word open before us, thanking Thee again that Thou hast given us Thy Word and that we may rely upon it. We thank Thee, Father, that what we have read is history. We rejoice, O Lord, in the command of our Savior to preach the gospel to every creature. We rejoice, O Lord, in the reality that as Christ's servants went forth preaching, He worked with them. O Lord, how we pray today that Thou would grant insight into the truth of Thy Word, Give us the grace and the strength we need to understand thy word to our hearts. So, Lord, grant grace for the exaltation of thy Son this day. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're going to consider the last 12 verses of the chapter in particular. And I want to begin by speaking a little about the doctrine of divine inspiration. Because the doctrine of the inspiration of the scriptures lies at the foundation of Christianity. There is no authority without that doctrine. There is no trustworthiness without that doctrine. There is no infallible guide for faith and practice without that doctrine. The Westminster Assembly understood this crucial point and placed the chapter on the Holy Scriptures at the head of the confession of faith. The emphasis of that chapter, chapter 1 in the confession, is not only on the miraculous origination of the Holy Scriptures, but also on their providential preservation. To suggest that the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures when holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, as Peter said, but that those writings then disappeared over time so that we don't know what they were, is to rob the doctrine of inspiration of all its power. If God gave the words of Scripture, but could not prevent them from being lost to succeeding generations, then the giving of the words becomes an empty action. In the fourth volume of Wilbur Pickering's massive work, The Identity of the New Testament Text, the author pondered the claim of modern textual critics that the verses that we have read verses 9 through 20 of Mark 16 are a spurious interpolation in the Gospel of Mark because the original ending somehow has been lost. And such claims have gained so much influence that publishers of more recent English versions of the Bible, and specifically I speak about the NIV, and the New American Standard Version, and there are others, 
have become complicit in this campaign of disinformation. Some modern English versions either place these 12 verses at the end of Mark in italics to suggest that they are probably not part of the original, or they place these verses in brackets with the notation that these verses don't appear in the oldest manuscripts that critics over the last century and a half have pretended are the most reliable indicators of what the text of God's Word is. Pickering asked the pungent question in his book, but most modern critics assure us that such is the case, that the genuine text ends at verse 8. So where was God all this time? If the critic's assessment is correct, we seem to be between a rock and a hard place. Mark's gospel as it stands is mutilated if it ends at verse 8, the original ending having disappeared without a trace. But in that event, what about God's purpose in commissioning this biography? Are we to say that God was unable to protect the text of Mark? or that he just could not be bothered. Either option would be fatal to the claim that Mark's gospel is God-breathed. That's what Pickering said. Now, we have come to one of the fundamental reasons for the policy we maintain in the Free Presbyterian Church of North America that we use only the King James Version of the Bible in our public services in our Sunday schools, and in every other public aspect of our ministry. Pickering asked again if God tried but was powerless to prevent the mutilation of Mark in this way, how can we be sure that the book has not been mutilated in other ways and places, or even systematically? For that matter, how can we be sure that other New Testament books have not been mutilated too, or maybe even all of them? His conclusion was that to accept the view of the critics on the last 12 verses of Mark's gospel is to say, as he argued, the Bible would lose its authority and consequently its importance. His argument is not then strictly technical. It is theological. Of what use is it for us to maintain the doctrine of the inspiration of the scriptures if God could not protect those writings from accidental or deliberate distortions? And in the early centuries of the church's history, there were deliberate changes made even to the autographs of Scripture. The brilliant 19th century textual scholar Dean Bergen affirmed the question at issue being simply this, whether it is reasonable to suspect that the last 12 verses of St. Mark are a spurious accretion and an authorized supplement to his gospel or not. The facts of history come to bear. And I'm going to be a little bit technical here, but I think it's important for you to recognize that we have every reason to stand 
on these 12 verses of Mark's Gospel. There are three manuscripts dating to the 4th century that omit these verses. They're just not there. They're gone. It was not until the 19th century that those manuscripts were discovered. And so they were not in use for all those centuries from the 4th to the 19th. That's a long time. Those manuscripts, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, and Vaticanus, and textual scholars, they would be familiar with those manuscripts. They, I tell you, are the only ones, the only ones, in which those omissions occur. On the other hand, there are thousands, even tens of thousands of other manuscripts that attest to the truth that these verses at the end of Mark's gospel are an equal part of the scriptures that the Holy Spirit has inspired. Some try to compromise. They say, well, these verses may be canonical, but Mark didn't write them. Somebody else wrote them. And they say that because they think the style of the writing changes. They talk about the shift from verse 8 to verse 9. And that here is a clear mark that there was something different here. But if you go back to Christian ministers and elders in the early centuries of the church's history, you have testimony, some of it very explicit, that the penman of these verses was the same man as the one who wrote the rest of the Gospel of Mark. Now you're probably wondering why I'm taking the time to explore this situation. It is because I want to underline the truth that every verse of Mark's Gospel, including the ones we have read today, is the infallible Word of God. The Apostle Peter said, We have not followed cunningly devised fables. We trust in what the Holy Spirit has revealed as the only rule for our faith and practice. So when we come to the last 12 verses of Mark's Gospel, we don't come to something that an unknown person invented to try to finish out the book, to avert the sudden end at verse 8. We come to the Word of God as the Spirit of God gave it to Mark. So we can say today that we come then to what I call Mark's last words. And I want you to think upon that theme with me today. So all of these words that we have read are Mark's last words. Think about the significance of the passage that we have read. You have set before you here the proofs of the resurrection as Luke described them at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles. This passage sets before us the Lord's final words of instruction 
to his disciples before he ascended to heaven. This passage sets before us the continuing impact of the historic events of which we read at the end of the gospel. So these last words of Mark are not the result of wicked invention. They are the words of God. As surely as the record of the resurrection is the infallible word of God in the first part of the chapter. So what are we to learn? Much as we said this morning, let us value every word of God. Every word. Again and again in Scripture, you find the exhortation to pay attention to every word of God. I spoke about Dean Bergen. He was an Englishman from the 19th century. When he was a young student, uh, just starting out in his theological education, he talked to one of his senior professors and asked him what he would recommend to this young man uh, regarding his education. The old man sat for a moment and then he replied, Well, sir, I should begin by studying the Gospel of Matthew. And then I should continue by studying the Gospel of Mark. And then I should go on to study the Gospel of Luke. And finally, I should continue to study the Gospel of John. So that was his advice to this young student who no doubt thought he was going to hear him talk about some of the great classic works of theological literature. But Dean Bergen took the counsel to heart and became not only one of the most highly respected textual scholars, there is a society with his name on it that is still active today, but he also became one of the greatest experts on the Gospels was ever written in English. So I want to come to these last words of Mark today and to consider four characteristics of those words. First of all, inspired words. Inspired words. We cannot avoid the judgment of the scriptures that these words exist because of the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Critics are fond of arguing that the Gospel of Mark was the source of material that other Gospel writers used and expanded, conflated in their accounts of the life of that, that they all used the Gospel of Mark, which the critics have labeled as Q. So if you were reading about this subject and you came across a reference to Q, you would know that you were dealing with a critic who had a low view of the Bible. But that argument suggests that there was only a part of Mark's gospel in existence and that he was probably not the author of it. There was someone else who goes by the letter Q. But these depraved reasonings defy the resounding message that we 
find throughout the scriptures. It's the first message that when I went to college, I had to commit to memory. In uh, our Bible doctrines course, sure, Reverend Finout will remember it well from the distant past. Second uh, Timothy chapter three and verse sixteen. He has these uh, memory verses up here on uh, a ring, and that reminds me of uh, what you saw students of Bible doctrines doing all the time. It's hard to believe this, I know for the younger people here, but there there were no devices. There were no phones, there were no iPads, there were no computers that people... Instead, we carried our memory verses around on little cards like this. And the first one, the first assignment, was 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished or truly furnished unto all good works. All scripture is profitable. Now, some modern English translations have dared to suggest that inspiration extends only to certain parts of Scripture. So they translate the words of that text this way. Every Scripture that God has inspired is also profitable. But if you look at the original language, no such interpretation is possible. The translation that we read in the King James Version is literal. All Scripture is inspired of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. And there's no other approach that leaves any basis at all for the Christian faith. Dean Bergen observed that some critics focus on the words of verse 16 in our chapter is teaching the error of baptismal regeneration. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. But Dean Bergen pointed out they do no such thing. The key to that verse is not baptism. It is belief. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, suggesting that baptism is an accompaniment to belief. But he that believeth not, shall be damned. So that's the issue of verse 16. Some critics object to the words of verse 18, that this is an unwarranted interpolation and it gives rise to foolish ideas about handling deadly snakes. And there are cults, and that's what they are, that use this verse as a foundation for what they do. But you notice... The whole context here, beginning at verse 17, these signs shall follow them that believe. And I believe that the words of Jesus here applied specifically to those to whom he was speaking, to his disciples. The words of verse 18 found their fulfillment 
in an incident in the life of Paul. Let us turn to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. And verse 3. The context is Paul and all those who were with him on a ship. They had been shipwrecked. The ship was smashed to pieces. But they all escaped with their lives and got to this island that today is known as Malta. They called it Melita. And the barbarous people, that is the people who lived on the island, uh, they tried to take care of these uh, people who had been shipwrecked. We read in verse 3 that they had, the people had kindled a fire, as we find in verse 2, and everybody set about collecting sticks. And we read in verse 3, When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat, a snake, a poisonous snake, and fastened on his hand, bit him. And when the barbarians, saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance suffereth not to live. And he shook off the beast into the fire and felt no harm. So he just shook it off. Howbeit they looked when he should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly. You know, they... You can see them all, can't you? Standing there saying, it won't be long now, he'll be down on the ground. But after they had looked a great while and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. But you see, here's the fulfillment of what Jesus said in Mark 16 and 18. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And the other signs we know came to pass. They shall lay their hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So I think all of those things go into the same context. The promise in verse 17 that there would be miraculous signs to accompany the ministry of the apostles then came to pass, as we can read in the Acts. So the section of this last chapter that begins with verse 9 is the same word of God as we find in the verses before it. I don't think I can stress it too much. They are inspired words. And what does it mean then? They're profitable. They're useful. For what? For doctrine? That is so we can learn the truth. For reproof? For our rebuke and correction? And for our instruction in righteousness? So let's not hinder to the words of deluded souls who say, well, we don't know how Mark's gospel ends because it's been lost and this part has been invented. We have before us today how Mark's gospel ends. Let us come then to another characteristic of these last words of Mark. Demonstrative words. What do we find in these words? We find the account 
of the proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's part of the argument. We can't accept the reasoning that tells us that this gospel, and if you accept the argument that the last 12 verses don't belong here, then this gospel is the only one that provides no proofs of the resurrection. It would be a very strange situation to omit those proofs in this gospel so that this gospel ended with the words in verse 8, they were afraid. That's how the critics say the gospel ended. They were afraid. These demonstrative words that we find in these verses draw our attention to the fact that the risen Christ appeared numerous times after his resurrection. Now significantly, I didn't think of this until recently, but significantly, he did not appear to anyone except for his disciples. That is, the people who had put him to death, he didn't appear to them. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, as we read here. And we can read of that encounter in John 20. I'm not going to take the time to go to that passage now. We read here in verse 12, he appeared in another form to two other disciples. And that's the account that we find in Luke 24. Remember the two men walking on the road to Emmaus on the day of the resurrection. And they were troubled about all the reports they had received. And then he appeared, as we read in these verses, to the remaining disciples, to the eleven. Judas having killed himself and gone to his own place. He appeared to the remaining disciples when they were in the upper room. And we can read of that event in Luke 24 and in John 20. The Apostle Paul testified in his first epistle to the church of Corinth concerning the resurrection. And let us turn to that passage, 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15. And verse 1. Verse 3. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He meant the Old Testament. Those were the only scriptures in existence. And that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, and then of the twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once. Five hundred people, more than five hundred people, all at the same time, saw the risen Christ. Paul said, the greater part are still alive. The majority of those five hundred and some are still alive. Some have died. Some are fallen asleep. And then Paul said, I saw him. I saw the risen Christ. So here are proofs of the resurrection. These last words of Mark demonstrate the reality that Christ has risen 
from the dead. We read the first eight verses just to set that context. And the word of the angel there. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He didn't need to say, aren't you? It was obvious that's what they were doing. What did he say? He's not here. He has risen. Look where they laid him. There was no body there any longer. So the emphasis here of this passage, and I think one of the reasons why it is under such attack, is that there's no shortage of evidence that cannot be denied that Jesus rose from the dead. But then we come to the third characteristic of these last words of Mark, compelling words. Jesus left a charge to those he called to follow him. The disciples are usually referred to collectively as the twelve. Here they are referred to as the eleven just to emphasize the fact that one of the original group was no longer among them. But what did he say to them? In verse 14, he upbraided them. He rebuked them for their unbelief, for their hardness of heart. They didn't believe the reports that came in the aftermath of the resurrection. They thought, these are idle tales. All these women, they've gotten so turned upside down, they don't know what the truth is anymore. He upbraided them. And then he said to them in verse 15, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He was saying to them, here's the message that I'm sending you out to preach. It is the gospel. The gospel that there is only one way of salvation. The gospel that there is a way of salvation open only through the sinless life and the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Now the disciples could not proclaim the gospel personally to every single person in the world. That's also an objection by the critics. Well, how could they go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? The point of the Lord's command was, that is, you spread out and engage people all over the world with this message. The emphasis of the Lord's words was that this message of the gospel was for every nation. Every social class, every racial and ethnic background, every level of education, every level of economic success. The message is spread the gospel wherever you are. And he promised them. Here was the compelling part of the words. He promised them his power would go with them. And we find in verse 20 of the gospel that Jesus did work with them. He worked with them. He worked through them. He worked with them. And in every call of a man to be a minister of the gospel, here is the promise. God works with him. 
So as they proclaim the message of Christ and him crucified, Christ worked with them. So we dare not classify these words in the last portion of this gospel as somehow of an inferior class when they are so compelling. And then we come to the last characteristic of these last words of Mark. Uplifting words. Uplifting words. We read of the event in verse 19. After the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. The ascension doesn't get as much attention as the resurrection, but just as important. He ascended up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. What is Jesus doing there? What is he doing there? He is interceding for his people. Let's just look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Verse 34. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Something to think that in heaven now there is one who has a human mother who is interceding for us. He's interceding for us. And he's coming for us. On the day of the ascension, you can imagine the disciples these were not men who were highly educated they were not sophisticated men and they saw him rise they were looking up you can almost see them with their mouths open in amazement the angels said why are you still here why are you gazing up into heaven this same Jesus will so come in like manner as you have seen him go. Jesus said to them, they were going to receive power from on high. And he promised them he would come again and receive them to himself so that where he is there, they may be also. These are Mark's last words. So let's treat them as the breath of God. They are just as much a part of the Bible as the first eight verses of this chapter. Let us resolve we will not depart from these last words of Mark. That we will feel the compulsion ourselves 
preach the gospel to every creature and lift up our heads to wait for God's Son from heaven. He is going to come. That's why I said this morning, we don't need to trouble ourselves so much with all the reports of all the perversion that goes on around us. God's Son is going to come from heaven. We know how it's going to end. We can be at peace in our souls. We don't have to be fretful and think what, what, what's going to happen next and what kind of perversion are we going to have to confront next. God's Son is going to come from heaven. And however, the interval in the, in the period between now and then comes about, we know how things will end. And we can rely upon the words that we find here. These last words of Mark's gospel. And rejoice that they too are infallible. And that we will find coming to pass all that we read herein. Oh, may the Lord bless his word. And encourage your hearts with it. And grant that in these days we may be found faithful to the proclamation of this word. The exaltation of this Savior. Let us bow in prayer. Gracious Father and eternal God. We do thank thee for thy holy word. We ask, O Lord, that Thou would be pleased to write Thy word upon every soul. Lord, remember those who are troubled in their souls, wondering what's going to happen, fearful about the future. O Lord, we pray, give us grace to focus our attention on the risen Christ on those things that he said to his disciples and on the reality that he is going to come again. Oh Lord, let it not be so much religious mumbo-jumbo. Let it be that which stirs our souls and causes us to look up because our redemption is drawing nigh. Bless thy word. Bless the work of the church here. Thank thee again for our dear brother Mark Finout and for his wife Robin and their daughters. Oh Lord, how we pray that thou would be pleased to direct them in thy ways and in thy will and to strengthen them for the work to which thou hast called them. So, Lord, accept our praise for this offer, for this time of fellowship and meditation on thy truth, and grant that thou wilt accomplish thy purpose in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Mark.
you want to give me your, your reward? I think I know what the problem was here. This power switch was not all the way over. So, so this, all this does is mute. So it was on all the time. So you might have a lot to cut out, I don't know. Well, I'll go back and look at it, see what, it's, what it did. I don't know. But yeah. Where's Candace? 